a great word. How many of you were here this morning heard Bill's word on prosperity? Wasn't that a great word this morning? I wrote down tons of quotes. Um, I just got back from New York. Kathy and I were in New York. Anybody from New York here? Ah, first time I've ever been to New York and saw the Statue of Liberty. How oh, so awesome. And uh, we had a great time there. And then um, Kathy came home and flew home and I, I went on to Ecuador for seven days. Yeah, anybody from Ecuador in here? Oh, awesome. Wow, God bless you. Yeah, may all your camels prosper. <laughs> and uh, so I was there for uh, six, six days actually with them. And uh, I, you know, I have this um, um, on-purpose habit that I don't actually look at my itinerary until I leave. I, and I plan in one year ahead, so I'm always planning one year ahead. So I got on the plane and I was looking at my itinerary. So a year ago, we planned this uh, this trip to Ecuador, and I it agreed to you know how many sessions we were going to do and what the sessions would be about, but. Because it was a year ago, I totally had forgotten. And I get on the plane, and I open my itinerary. And I, I, I don't like to look at my itinerary too far out, because when I think about my whole year all at once, it creates lots of anxiety. So I just, I've, lear- I've learned to live, like, actually day by day, but week by week in, on my itinerary. So, in fact, Kathy can tell you, I look at my itinerary for tomorrow, like I will look at it late tomorrow night. I will look at it for the next day. I do that all the time. So anyway, I don't know if that's helpful or if it's like a sign I'm too busy or what, but that's what I do. So anyway, I get on the plane and I open my itinerary. I've already been to New York and I'm flying to to Ecuador and I'm thinking, oh, I I wonder what they want me to preach on and all that. And And I open up my itinerary and I'm like, they have me preaching on sex nine times. Nine times. I don't even remember agreeing to that. I'm like, I don't even know what to say nine times about sex. So, that was a true story. I did a moral revolution session. So, we, so I get there in the morning, get off the plane, and two hours later they took me to a school. And so I, for, I, there's 500 of the quietest students I've ever spoke to in my entire life. That they sat there completely silently as if I was not even talking to them. And I talked to them about sex. Like high school kids about sex. They were totally quiet. I'm like, are these kids all right? Like, and afterwards, um, uh, we found out that the, the schoolmaster said, if you speak, if you laugh while he's teaching, you are on suspension. <laughs> Literally, it was the quietest group I have ever spoke to. I've been doing this for a lot of years, you know. I, I, I've been doing more revolution message for 15 years. That was the quietest group I've ever spoke to. And I'm, I kept saying, are you, guys, are, are you guys okay? I'm talking about sex. You're teenagers. <laughs> so we went from there uh, two hours later, and we went to, um, well, i got to tell you, this, this is a really cool story. The Archbishop of, Ec- of Ecuador read my moral revolution book in Spanish. The archbishop, Catholic archbishop. He read the moral revolution book. He got a hold of a Protestant pastor and he said, Is this, do you know this man? He said, yeah, he's a friend of mine. He's coming. He said, I, I would like him to do, talk about sex in our schools. 
And if it, could you get him to come? So I came to a school, and they bust in eight Catholic schools into one school, and it was fifteen hundred high school kids in the school. Now this is kind of funny. So the first guys that got there, I think it was actually this, their school that we used, was the boys' school. So there was like three boys' schools, three girls' schools, and then two schools that were that were uh, mixed. And so the boy, this first boys' school was like, there was like 500 boys and they had them in this, there was kind of like stands, so they, they were in the stands, so they sat in the stands, and then all these people were coming in, all these different schools were coming in, like buses were coming, and for like 45 minutes buses were unloading, and, and um, Gio, our translator, my translator, who's also a uh, graduate from school of ministry, and a good friend, He's, uh, we're standing, and you can kind of see this tunnel, you know, they call it the tunnel, where there's a sound booth, and they can come through this, like, 12-foot-long tunnel. And so the guys are over the top of that. They're in stands above that. And uh, Gio looks out, and he sees this particular bus, like three buses stop, stop, and he goes, watch what happens. And he goes, look, look, watch what happens. I said, what? What's going on? He said, watch what happens when, that, when those buses unload and they come in here. So three buses unload, and they, and they march in kind of an orderly fashion, and it's the girls' school. And these, these boys act like they were in prison, and they haven't never seen a girl. And they stood, and they started doing the wave as the girls came in. It was nuts. So, yeah, we had the... So, uh, for, you know, I said... How many of you know God gave you a sex drive? When I said God gave you a sex drive, the boys jumped up and screamed in some language, something. I don't know what they were screaming. And then they started doing the wave because God gave them a sex drive. I have never had that happen. So I went from the quietest group to the loudest group I'd ever shared with. And then from there, we did a group of 600 in, a, in, a, in another school, another high school, and then a group of 500 in another high school, and a group of 400 in another high school. And then we met parents, 500 parents one night, 500 parents another night. And then we spoke to the, the leaders of the network, which is, there was about 600 of them, and taught them how to teach their kids about sexuality. And I mean, I, literally, like six days, all we talked about was sex. How my wife wasn't with me, and I don't know why that was meaningful, but or not. But anyway, so we should pray. I thought, no, we should pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for sex, and thank you that we're not going to talk about that tonight. And we just bless families tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. I guess I, I spent a lot of time um, that last week um, just talking about families with, you know, we obviously, are, the subject was more revolution all week long, but, but more often than not, we started, we, we, when we met with leaders and parents, we had questions and answer sessions, and, and they, all these guys who travel know that, you know, when you're, when you're trying to communicate something through a translator back and forth, that is a lot of work. So a 45-minute you know, uh, session turns into an hour and 20 minutes. And so we did questions and answers. And, and, uh, I, and I, I spent just a lot, a lot of time talking about families and, and raising families. And, 
and, um, and how to have a healthy family. And, and uh, you know, we, we started out with one subject, but it really there was much deeper roots. I, so I guess probably because that's been on my mind all week long, and I was thinking about how simple things that we learned, um, you know, things that seem like, how many of you know common sense isn't so common anymore? And simple things that, that it seems like you should learn when you're young or when you're newly married or the first couple years, the things that you, you think everybody knows, not everybody knows. And it's not because they're stupid, it's just because no one's ever mentored them, no one's ever fathered them, no one's ever talked to them. And so, um, you know, I find myself um, in those sessions, many of those sessions with the parents and with the leaders just answering, like, um, really, you know, I mean, Danny would have thought he died and went to heaven. It's like, well, these are questions that can actually be answered. You know, sometimes people ask you questions. I mean, here, when in school, they ask you questions that, like, I don't know, man, you need a you know, degree in psychology to answer that question. But it's so nice when people answer, ask you questions that are like, oh, I actually know the answer to that question. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of nice. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about healthy families, and we'll just see where it goes. I, I have some notes, and um, I have some things on my heart as far as direction. My, uh, my son, three years ago, my son was preaching, um, and, I, and I happened to just be in the meeting that he was preaching at. I think, on, I think it was on a Friday night, Jason. And he said, I've often had problems bigger than me, but I've never had a problem bigger than my family. And uh, for those of you that know my, my son, who's on our staff, um, you know, he went through a divorce six years ago while he was on staff, and um, very, it was a very difficult time, obviously for, obviously for us, for him, for my three little grandchildren, and, and for us as a team. And um, very, it was a very difficult time. And I, I just, um, you know, just the value of having a community that stays together in hard times is, um, well, let's put, I don't don't know, I'm lost for words, like, like, I don't know how people do it, that don't have that. That's the the only way we've gotten through some things in our lives, And, and that was, season was one of them, people just rallied around and, and I remember, uh, my son, he, he obviously, he was, he was um, one of the leaders of his uh, school ministry, so when he went through that, the divorce, and his, uh, you know, I don't want to expose the whole thing, but uh, just because we're streaming, not necessary, but um, when he went through that season, you know, he obviously, I'm his boss, I'm also his dad, so that felt like, well, that's kind of like, I'm not sure that, I, that I'm going to make the right decision. I'm going to do what's best for you. I'm not sure that's best for the, this family as a whole, as far as you staying on staff and how all that works. So I sent him in to see Bill. And I said, you, you need to go see Bill. Bill's our dad. Bill knows what to do. And uh, he went in to see Bill and said, you know, uh, I'm here to, you know, this is my situation, um, going through a divorce, I'm also leading the school ministry. I don't know if you want me to stay on staff or, you know, you want me to leave. And, and Bill said to him something like this. I, I probably don't have it exactly right, but the, con- the content will be close. Bill said, you didn't do anything wrong. And 
families stay together in tough times, that's what we are. We're family. You're not an employee. You're, you're part of our family. Why would you even think of leaving? Of course, my son came out of that office and walked into mine and said, both said, I'm staying, which I expected, but it needed to come from him. So, you know, I just, I want to just talk about, a little bit about healthy families. You know, I, I notice, I know that, you know, trials um, in marriage, you know, trials, they either bond you or they break you, depending on whether you leave or cleave. You know, when you go through a challenge together, whether it's something exciting or, you know, um, you, you know, it's funny, just as many families, well, maybe not just as many, many families break apart when, when there's fame and fortune, when there's sudden fame and fortune, uh, as they do when they go through trials, you know, hard times. I, I'm, I, think that, I think that fame and fortune can be as big a trial as something going wrong in your family, is what I'm trying to say. I, I, but for me, I'm like, kill me with, you know, wealth, you know, that's... I'd rather have that one. I get it. I know everybody's sitting out there and go, I'd love to like, experience that and see, see how we get along when we have too much. <laughs> you know, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, but um, you know, so I know that, that, that trials, they, they either bond you or they break you. And it all depends on how you respond, you know, in those times. And, and so I want to just talk about four foundational core values. There, there's probably 50. These are just the ones I was thinking about this last week. And the first one I, I thought of is that you put your, your spouse first because marriage means that you've come into this relationship to lay your life down. And this is the difference between cohabiting and marriage. If you ever talk to somebody, you know, I mean, we all probably, I bet you there's not a person in this room that doesn't know people who live together who have a couple, three, four, five kids. I mean, together, they have kids. And, and you're like, why don't, you know, have you ever thought about getting married? I mean, been together for 10 years, you know, got three kids. And they're like, no, marriage is just a piece of paper. I'm like, really? If marriage is just a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it. You don't sign it because cohabiting says, I'm in this for what I can get. See, I don't want to sign a piece of paper that metaphorically says, I'll be here forever, because I use the fear of abandonment to get what I want. Because I haven't come to lay down my life, I've come to get life from you. I've come for a completely different reason. I haven't come to bond with you, I've come to get from you. But marriage, how many of you understand, guys, we've been, husbands love your wives, if Christ loved your church and gave himself up for, how many of you know, guys, that marriage is, it, 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 it's a death walk to a, a, a life camp. You know? We've come... I, <laughs> it's so funny to me that, you know, Ephesians chapter 5, you know, it says... I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. Is, it, it's so funny the way that people read Ephesians chapter 5. Let me just read it. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is how it starts. This is the 21st verse of chapter 5. Be subject to one another. What's it say? Be subject to who? One another. Next verse. Wives, be subject to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husband, the head of his wife, is Christ, as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as Christ is subject to the 
I'm sorry, as the church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be subject to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that they might present that he might present himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves and cher- I'm sorry, he who loves start over. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. How many of you know that, that ver- those verses are often read like, Wives, submit to your husbands. And then the husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and died for her. I, mean, I always wonder why the emphasis is on submission instead of dying. Because I've always thought that women wouldn't have any problem submitting to a dead person. The problem is that he stays alive. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, she doesn't submit to me. You're still alive. That's the problem. You're supposed to be dead. If you were dead, she wouldn't have any problem submitting to you. But because you are alive, she's having to struggle with you. And so people, yeah, I know it's kind of a crazy way to think about it, but the emphasis in, 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 in Ephesus, in, the, in these verses, is not submission. It's, there's eight verses about how a man should cherish and love his wife like he loves himself and do it the same way Christ did. And how did Christ love the church? So people are like, I think men have authority over women. Okay, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that, but here, here would be my next question. If you think men have authority, husbands have authority over wives, then the question would be, what, does you, what do you do with it? Because what Christ did with the authority he had over the church is he exalted her to his right hand and set, it, and set her with him at his right hand and gave, him, gave her authority over everything. So I don't care how you argue it, it's like you don't get to be the boss. People read this like, Husband is the boss of the wife. And you have to stop right there because the next part of it says, as Christ is to the church. And Christ exalts the church. He doesn't oppress her. So there's this whole, this whole thing. So the first thing I, I just want to say is this, is that the way that marriage works, not cohabiting, the way that marriage works, that way that marriage works is that you come into the marriage and you, if you're a husband, you meet your wife's needs. Like, your job is to discover, develop, and deploy. <laughs> discover her needs. Develop a plan to meet them and deploy the plan. That's your job. That's how you have a great marriage. Well, what if she doesn't give back to me? Listen, it's really hard to be loving and have someone not love you back. And, unless there's other things you're doing. Because, you know, I've just done too much marriage counseling. Well, I do all that stuff for her, but she doesn't like me. I get in the room with her, and then she tells me the other stuff he does. 
I'm like, dude, this guy's like Frankenstein, you know? <laughs> or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't remember which one was the good one, but it's like, you know, it takes three years to, it takes a year to build a house and three hours to, to burn it down. And, and I don't know what it is about people, but, you know, sometimes they feel like, well, I did all this good stuff. And it's like, yeah, but you broke the windows out of the house. Well, yeah, well, that was three weeks ago. I'm like, whoa, wait a second, you're not trustworthy. You're not trustworthy, you're not consistent, your behavior, everybody's, you know, walks around on eggshells. Yes, but I bought her a new car. Well, it doesn't matter what you bought her when you act like an idiot. <laughs> you know, if you want to act like an ape, then you need to be in the jungle. You can't make up with stuff what, you're at, what, what you destroy with your attitude. Let me just say that again. Roses won't cover a bad attitude. It still stinks. I lived in a home where I had a crazy dad, you know, and he would go crazy, and then the next day I would have a gift on my bed. I'm not sure what that's supposed to do. Like, is this a peace offering? I'm not God. You know, and I just assume, like, I'd rather have a, big, a good attitude than a, you know, than a go-kart. You know, I just assume to have, you know, this is, I don't know if this is like, I'm sorry, but this doesn't say I'm sorry on it. Just, it's just a box with something in it, and it doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't fix something. Are you with me? So, I love Philippians 2, 3. It's not just about marriage, it's about relationships. It's to, says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Well, wow, that's hard right there. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Actually, the word merely is actually not in the Greek. So here's how it reads in the Greek. Do not look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him. This is the, the kind of love that we're called to have for one another. Like, we're called to have the kind of love that isn't selfish. So, so what would happen if I wasn't my favorite subject. I mean, just think about it for one day. Like, what would happen if I spent one day thinking about my spouse? Like, if she or he was my favorite subject, and I thought all day long about what it is that they would really want. Like, what could I do to make them, like, something they, they really enjoy? And, and um... That seems really simple, but it's funny how um, these are the things that seem like don't, that these simple things are the things that seem like they just don't get done in marriage. It seems like we get busy taking care of life and trying to make a living and taking care of kids, and pretty soon it's every man, every woman for themselves. And pretty soon we find that we're, what I'm thinking about is taking care of me, and I start going back to the world system that says, 
If I don't take care, if I don't think of me, who's going to? And, um, and that's the beginning of the end of a real marriage. That's the beginning of the end of a real marriage. And so, um, I, I want to say, number two, foundational core values. Your spouse should be your closest friend, your greatest ally, your most bonded companion, and your covenant partner for life. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, uh, verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he'd taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How many understand what's happening there? It's like, when, where, did God find, where did God find the woman? Inside the man. God put Adam to sleep, and he took the woman out of the man, which means the woman was in the man. And by the way, whole other teaching. But guys, you can't get in touch with your feminine side unless you get married. Because God took the feminine side out of you. And then, so God took one and he made two. He took Adam and he made Adam. And out of Adam, he made Adam and Eve. And then how many of you know when Adam woke up, he was missing something? I just have this picture that Adam wakes up. And it, I, don't, you know, I don't know how you think about this, but the, the, we know this. The, man, the woman was in the man. I, I, I have this picture in my mind that Adam wakes up and his feminine side is missing and he looks up and there she is and he begins to prophesy to her and a man shall leave his father and mother now how many of you know they don't have a father and mother it's a prophecy they only have God a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one why will the two become one because the one became two and so marriage this is, you know, these are, these are all things that, that it isn't just metaphoric. It's like there's something happens when you marry, when you merge, when you make a covenant with somebody. We're not, when, you're, when you decide not to cohabit, but when you decide to lay down your life for one person and you have intercourse with one person and, you, and the two of you become one person and you bond as one person. And, and, and what began to, as, as, as one and became two and becomes one again, there's something about a lifetime bond with a covenant partner that isn't about having sex with 20 people or 30 or 50. It's, it's you know, uh, I mean, I don't really want to get into this, this subject tonight, but it's the reason why homosexuality shouldn't, there, the, there shouldn't be gay marriage. Because... The two can't become one. And marriage was all about, it comes from the word merge. You can't merge two people who have, op- who have the same equipment. And who both have the same, you know, they're both males or they're both females. Because the goal was the two, the male and the female, would merge again and become whole through, or, through marriage. Through a covenant. And God gave a woman blood. 
And we won't get graphic because we've got an audience on, on streaming. But, but he gave a woman <coughs> blood so that there would be a blood covenant made. And that there would be a lifetime bond. And that that blood covenant can only be made one time, barring a miracle. Are you following me? And there's just something beautiful about the idea, not just the idea, there's something beautiful about what happens when a man and a woman lay down their lives for one another, they shed blood, they make a lifetime covenant, and they say, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do its part. There's something about, I am with you forever, no matter what happens. I am with you no matter what happens. And I, and I, I, I think that the world is hungry to see a real marriage. I, I, I know this is going to be offensive to some people, but I actually think that the lack of a real, uh, the, lack, the lack of the real thing, I mean, I know people go, they get married, you know, they say, I do, and they call that a marriage, you know. But how many of you know the wedding is not the marriage? People spend thousands of dollars on the wedding. They'll, they'll plan for nine months for a wedding and not spend one hour reading a book about marriage. And I think that the lack of a, of a marriage model that actually works where people actually get along and go along and love life together is part of the reason why we have all this confusion about can these kind of people marry? Can this be a marriage? It's like, well, if we saw the real thing, and we're, we see the real thing around here, if the world saw the real thing, they would go, well, wait a second, that can't be a marriage, because that isn't this. That isn't this. Number three, fun and happy are the fruit of good choices, not the goal of life itself. I don't know how that's going to work here. Because we're all about joy. But how many know that joy and happy are not the same thing? At least not in the way that we explain them. Like, marriage... Marriage is work. Like, when you're in a relationship with somebody for life and you're with them, you know, pretty much 24 hours a day and you do everything together and every finan- everything that happens financially in their life affects you and everything that happens in your life financially affects them and everything that happens with the kids affects both of you and on and on. Like, you're tied together and you sometimes feel like you're being drugged through life together. How many of you know that marriage can be work? And I think I have a wonderful marriage. I can tell you that Kathy and I have never had a bad day. Well, if you add up all the hours, we've probably had a few months. But we've never had a bad day. We've had bad hours. We've had lots of bad, bad struggles. I'm talking about between the two of us. Yes, we've had lots of bad days. We had six months. Chris got a vacation on the couch for six months. It was very awesome. My mind left, and I really got a chance to relax once and for all. That was a joke. But between the two of us, we've never had, we never have had more than a few hours of conflict. Mostly because Kathy hates conflict. And mostly because she's smart and she figures out I'm right pretty quickly. (laughs) 
I understand that what I'm about to say needs some balance, but when you're like, I'm going to marry that girl, she's going to make me happy, here's, here's my challenge. Can you just give me a little grace? Because I, I understand that if you just take what I'm about to say and you take it out of the context of my life, I wouldn't even agree with it. But when you marry someone and you put the responsibility for a person to make you happy, that is the beginning of destroying a relationship. You, a human being, cannot make you happy. I'm going to tell you something like, happiness is an inside job, and it's reserved for God. As soon as I put the weight of, of you, I'm unhappy because of a person. There's a human being that can make me happy. No, no, a human being can't get inside of me. Only God and my spirit get to get inside of me. And happiness is an inside job. I'm not saying that, you know, that people can't make you unhappy. And, you know, all the things that are obvious. So if I can just say there's obvious things, you know, someone's beating you, someone's screaming at you. I get all of that. I'm, I'm just trying to make a statement like when I put the responsibility for happy on a human, I've already begun to put pressure on a relationship that God did not design them for. So yes, I can make you unhappy, and yes, there's nice things I can do for you that, quote, can make you happy, but life itself cannot depend on a human. And that's why a covenant is never between a husband and wife. It's between God, a husband and a wife. And God's the, the stability in the midst of that. I, I don't know how marriages work without God, but I can tell you that ours wouldn't. Because we, we need God. Well, listen, we want God. But there are times when we absolutely have to have God. Like, we probably need God all the time. Like if God stepped off the scene, we'd probably all just like poof, disintegrate into like a vapor. I'm aware that we need God. <laughs> you know, you don't know how, it don't matter how you say this. Like, I'm thinking of, I, I've been watching, I've been reading too many Facebook comments. It doesn't matter how you say something, people were like, well, wait a second, you know, there's uh, 1 Peter chapter 12 says, there isn't even a 1 Peter chapter 12, it's one of the long, lost books or something, you know? Get this, Matthew chapter 5, I mean, this is, this is the response to, you know, I'm not happy in my marriage. This is, this is a big deal in the 21st century. I'm not happy Okay, here's how Jesus says to be happy. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat, and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who have been persecuted for my sake, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom. Happy are those people who insult, no, happy are, are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you. Rejoice, be glad. <laughs> Your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are with you. I didn't see one verse that says, and happy are you when you get married. 
It's like, I'm not happy with this woman. Well, go find someone to persecute you. <laughs> go find someone to mourn with. This is, go find someone who's poor in spirit. You know, find somebody who hungers for righteousness. And find someone who's, who's merciful. And find a peacemaker. Find, find someone who's persecuted. For, I mean, these are God's ideas of being happy. I mean, she doesn't make me happy. What, 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 what's going to make you happy? God's idea of happy and our idea of happy are not the same. God says, you want to be happy? Yes, God, I just want to be happy in life. Okay, I want you to mourn. God, I want to be happy. Okay, see that guy right there? He's got cancer. I want you to connect with him and mourn with him. How, how is that going to make me happy? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Lord, right now I don't need comfort because I'm not connected to him. But if I get close to him, then I'm going to mourn, then I'm going to need to be comfort. Yeah, and you'll be happy. <laughs> Go do something worth being persecuted for. Is there anybody else up there? I'm like talking about my marriage. You know, happy is used 88 times in the New Testament. Not one time is it ever used for marriage. I'm not supposed to be happy in my marriage? No, happy's not the goal. I don't get married to be happy. I serve my family. I do the right things. And it's the fruit, not the reason. It's like when people go to... uh, This is probably not going to go over well with some people... I get scared when people want, they want to talk to me because I've been in business for many years. And, and so they come and they say, I want to start a business. And I, first thing I go, why, first thing I say, why do you want to start a business? Because I want to make a lot of money. I want to go in business because I want to make a lot of money. That's the wrong reason to go in business for a believer. I mean, money should be the fruit of serving people, inventing things, all of those things. But it can't be the reason as soon as it's the reason, every time you do have a retail store, you walk, in the, you walk in the store and there's another dollar sign and people can feel it. You ever see those signs behind the counter that says, listen, there's no return on anything you purchase here? That's one of those people that said, I'm in business to make money. And by the way, once you buy this, once we sucker you into buying this, we are taking it back. We don't care about you. We don't care about your business. We got your money, and we're not giving it back. It's like, yeah, and those are the ones that have lots of parking spaces out front. Because everyone can feel, when you walk into a store like that, that those people are not there to serve me. They're there to make money. And a marriage shouldn't be like that. I'm going to marry you because you're going to make me happy. Ah, Wow, that's, well, I hope that works out good for you. But when I'm here to serve you and to love you and, and to say to you, I don't care what you go through, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stand with you no matter what happens. I'm your companion for life. I'm not your happy partner. I hope we have all oh, happy days. I hope we do. But you know, when we have sad days, I didn't marry you to be happy. I married you to be my companion and my lover the rest of my life. That's what I married you for. 
I'll just give you one more happy verse. James chapter 1 says, Happy is the man who who perseveres under trial. (laughs) I could probably killed you with this already. Happy, I should have brought Kleenex. (laughs) Happy is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he's approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised for those who love him. Anyway, I think I've probably beat that one into the ground. I want to just give you um, four quick keys to having a great family. The first one's communication. One of the main goals of a healthy family is to create a safe place for people to listen and to be heard. Um, I, I just want to talk about this. The Proverbs has this is this great verse, eighteen two. Proverbs eighteen two says, "A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind." The, um, you know. When you're communicating, communicating isn't just words. I said these words, she said these words. That, that's not communicating. Communicating is listening from heart to heart. Communicating, I mean, it, communication isn't just I talk and you talk. Communication isn't just a, isn't just a dialogue. Communication is, is I'm listening not just to what you're saying, but to what your heart is crying out for. And you know, the, the, the deal is, is some people are super articulate and other people are not. So you know, there are, there are marriages where the, it, it's, it's astounding. You know, I've had them in my office for years ago, especially when we did uh, lots of counseling. People would come in and, and the guy, it's typically the guy, it's like, he's shocked that she wants to leave. Like, wow, we've never had an argument. It's like, no, no, you win every argument, so we don't talk. And, and, he's, and, and he's like, well, you know, I, I don't know what I've done wrong. No, because you don't listen. You don't listen. And it's, it can be, the, it can be the, the woman, too. It's like, it's not just about talking. It's about listening. It's about understanding. It's about asking questions. It's, about, it's not about defending yourself. Like Marriage should be a safe place where you can tell me what you really think and I can not defend myself because I'm dead. And dead people don't defend themselves. So when you say, when you do this, this, and this, and it makes me feel like that, that, and that, I don't have to say, well, will you do this too? Let me tell you about the things you do. I mean, what, how helpful is that? How helpful is, is it that we, that, that, that we throw insults at one another or that we compare how bad we've been with each other or that I keep a file? Here, are you going to pull out your file? Here, let me get my file. I've got back to 82, you know. Here we go. And so communication, you know, I, I just want to... Here's a few points. Ask a lot of questions. Make sure the person feels heard and understood. If it matters to you, then talk about it. Don't bring up the past once it's forgiven. Oh, let me just read that again. Don't bring up the past once it's forgiven. Oh, let me read it again. Don't bring up the past once it's forgiven. Yeah. Thank you. If it's forgiven, it's under the blood. If we've talked about it before, listen, if you did it three times and we didn't talk about it, then you can say, you did that three times. Okay, we didn't talk about it. 
But if you, did it th- if you did it three times, and two times we talked about it, and two times I forgave you, then we're talking about what you did today, not the other two times. Because then it feels like, you know what? I'm never going to get out of this cycle because you keep a list of everything I've ever done wrong. And it takes away any confidence I have to break this pattern in my life and really serve you. So, you, listen, forgiven things are off limits. They shouldn't be brought up. They shouldn't be brought into a conversation, they're gone forever, washed away. And by the way, forgiveness restores the standard. I've shared this story many times, but I really love the story. One of my, I, I, uh, one of my sons walked into the kitchen and Kathy and I were having an argument. We, we honestly don't have a lot of heated arguments, but we were having one. Actually, I was a heated one which I'm sure you're shocked about. And I was being very disrespectful to her. And, um, and so, and my son walked through the kitchen, and he didn't say anything, just walked through and kept going. And about an hour later, I thought, man, what an idiot you are, you know? What are you, what are you being so disrespectful for? So I went back to her, and she was in the bedroom, and I said, I am really sorry for being disrespectful. I was wrong. I was wrong about that. Not only was I wrong about what I was sharing with you, but I was wrong about being disrespectful to you. I forgive you. Good. It was all fine. So that night I went to bed. And, you know, we're all good. Everything was fine between us. Clean up my mess. Everything is good. We've, we've never kept offenses with each other. We've never held bitterness with one another. Never, ever. And I, I went to bed, and right before I went to sleep, I felt like the Lord said to me, you didn't apologize to your son. I said, I didn't apologize to my son. You know, and I felt like the Lord said, if you don't apologize to your son, he's going to think it's okay to treat his wife like that. And you just, you just taught him how to not treat his wife. So I'm like, uh, okay. So the next morning, I thought, well, instead of just telling my son, because I know they all talk, you know, mom and dad, dad was rude to mom, I thought, I should apologize to all four of my kids. And they were teenagers, so that wasn't very much fun. So I said, hey, I want you guys to come in the front room. I have something to say. Oh, Dad's got a new message. He wants to try out on us, you know. <laughs> uh, open to the book of Genesis. You know, they're all waiting for a message from Dad. So they're all sitting on the couch. I'll never forget. And they're all like, you know, my youngest is like, how long is this going to take? Are you going to cry when you talk? <laughs> so... All, I still couldn't remember. You know, they're teenagers. I get it. I understand totally. Like, you know, this is probably more for me than it is for them. So I, I said, yesterday, I, you know, your mother, you know, I was rude to your mother. And, um, and I, I treated her with dishonor. I was rude to her. I treated her with disrespect. And I asked her, and Kathy was in the, I asked her to come in. I said, and I asked you to forgive me, didn't I? She said, yeah. I said, you forgave me. Yes, I did. So I, I need you guys to forgive me. Would you guys forgive me? They're looking at me like, sure. <laughs> Do we get anything for it? I mean, sure, we forgive you. They were just like, yes. Like, sure. Okay, no big deal. Yeah, you're forgiven. Okay, well, you sure you forgive? Yes, dad, we're done. We're done. Let's not, can we not have a long talk about this? You're forgiven. Great. About three or four days later, 
one of my sons comes in the kitchen, and I, I was outside or someplace, and he was being really rude to his mom, which wasn't his nor- normal demeanor. And I just happened to walk in the house just as he's like being rude. So I stopped and I said to him, hey, you don't have permission to be rude to my wife. Look at me. You do not have permission to be rude to my wife. If you have something to say, please feel free to say it. But do not say it in that tone of, mat- in that tone of voice and with that attitude. He said, well, you did. You did it. Two days ago, you yelled at mom. I said, yeah, but you forgave me. And when you forgave me, you took away permission to do the same thing because forgiveness restored the standard. So you can't hold me to that old standard anymore because when you forgave me, forgiveness restores the standard. No longer, do I have to live at, um, at, no longer do I have to live in my worst day or my worst mistake. I don't think he got it because, okay, sorry, Mom. <laughs> I think he was like, is this a theological point? Communication, just a few more things. Raising your voice, calling names, making threats, escalating the tension. Doesn't serve, uh, and, and uh, it serves to cause the person to defend themselves, not communicate. How many know when you start calling somebody names, or raising your voice, or trying to intimidate somebody, how many understand that this doesn't actually solve the problem? Now, now I'm gonna, what's gonna happen? I'm gonna close the, I'm gonna close the hatch, close all the doors, button down the hatch, and, and get out my weapons, and now we're just going to see who has the best weapons. We're, not gonna, we're, not, we're no longer talking about the actual issue, because you put me in a place that all I'm going to do is defend myself. So, you know, that, just forget that stuff. Proverbs 15.1, one of my favorite verses, says, gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I love this proverb, 25.8 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man or a woman who can't control his spirit. So I just want to encourage you, like, control yourself. I can't control myself. Yeah, if you have the Holy Spirit, you can, because self-control is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit. I just get mad and blow up. Well, then you need to get baptized again and let them hold you under for a little longer. (laughs) Because the Bible says that one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. You can control you because the Holy Spirit's in you and he gave you back control of you. So the idea that you're out of control, that's a bad plan. The goal, the goal of great communication is not agreement, it's understanding. Here's another, here's another challenge. If, if, if the goal of our exchange is you have to agree with me, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to work you until you give in. Like, I'm going to tell you, like, let's just keep talking about it. You know why? We, we, have, a, we have a disagreement because, because the goal is for us, us to agree on this subject. How many of you know, if you put two people in a room for like, like Kathy and I, 40 years, 24 hours a day, you're probably not going to agree on everything. The goal is not to agree. The goal is to understand. 
I understand how you feel. I understand. I'm not just saying I understand. I clearly do understand how you feel. And so... I, I, and I do, I do know that there are times when we have to come to some sort of agreement about what we're going to do. But the goal of every conversation can't be that we agree. Well, I like purple. Well, no, purple's not the right color. Let's just keep talking about it until you agree that purple's not the right color. It's like, you know, forget it. The object of communication, if the object of communication is to win the argument, to be right... It's impossible to reconcile the relationship. Listen, there shouldn't be a win-lose. I won that argument. If you won the argument and lost the relationship, then you lost. The goal isn't to win the argument. This This is not a chess game. This is not basketball. This is not football. This is a marriage. This is a relationship. This is a relationship with our children. The goal with our children is not to win the argument with our children. The goal is to stay connected, to understand, and to help to guide them, and to help to guide one another. That's the goal. Connection number two. How are we doing? A few more minutes. Number two, connection. You have a heart-to-heart bond that renders you inseparable. In troubled times, reassure the person that your commitment to them is unwavering. Um, I'll just take a few minutes for this you know, when Jonathan and David made a covenant together, and David's, and Jonathan's father was chasing David through the wilderness to try and kill him, what I love about Jonathan is three times Jonathan goes out and finds David in the wilderness. Remember, John, David's the one who's at risk. Jonathan's the one who's supposed to have the throne. David's the one who God anointed to have the throne. You understand all this? Like the last guy who should be encouraging him should be Jonathan. But Jonathan goes out three times. When, when, he, when David's at the greatest risk, Jonathan slips out from his father's army and goes out and they weep together. And it says, and Jonathan encouraged David. And Jonathan reaffirmed their covenant with David. How many understand that in tough times, that's not the time to play the blame game? Who caused this? Oh, we're in a financial crisis. If you wouldn't have spent that money on that, that Christmas gift, if you wouldn't have bought that car, if you wouldn't have made that bad investment, listen, in tight times, this isn't the time. Like, Let's examine whose fault it is. No, no, let's reaffirm our covenant. Let's reestablish the fact that we're together in this. Let's find God in the midst of this tough time. Because it, it doesn't do any good to it doesn't do any good to try to figure out whose fault it is. And if it is somebody's fault, then let, let God work on them and let them find a place of, of restitution. Does that make sense? Refuse to have performance-driven connection. Um, this is I was thinking a lot about our kids. It's like you got an F on your report card, therefore you can't be a part of the family. What does that teach you? That teaches me, you love me when I perform, and you don't love me when I don't. Like, think of some other plan. You know, I, I, I know Danny Silk's got ideas. <laughs> we didn't have the Danny Silk training when, I was, when our kids were little. Like, they, they just, I just said, you touch that, here's your choice. You can touch it. That's your one choice. And then my choice is, you're going to get spanked. 
So those are the two choices you have. <laughs> Do you want to get spanked or not get spanked? I mean, think of some, you know, think of some creative ways to, to um, you know, work with your kids, but don't, um, don't withdraw love from kids to make your point. Don't withdraw your love from kids. As a matter of fact, if you reprimand them, that's the time to stay close to them. If, if, if you some, in some way discipline your kid, that's the time to stay close to them. They, they need to know they got discipline. How many of there's a big difference between discipline and punishment? Punishment says, I'm going to render the penalty for your sin. Okay, you're going to get, you are going to get, you did something wrong. Now you're going to, you're going to fill the penalty of your wrongdoing. But discipline says, I love you too much to leave you the way you are. And by the way, and Bill taught us this years ago, he said, correct attitude before you correct behavior. How many of you know that if we're going to teach our kids, if we're going to teach our kids how to live, we need to teach them how to think. And so when they start to have bad attitudes, how many of you know behaviors come out of attitudes? And attitudes out of belief systems. And remember Jay, he wouldn't mind me telling us, he's told it on himself a number of times, but... He used to wake up when he was probably, from, from the time he was about 8 till the time he was probably, I don't know, 12, 11, 12 years old. He'd get up every morning and he was like, he was definitely the perfect picture of, I don't do mornings. <laughs> and he'd wander around the house like a zombie, like, hey, put your socks on. Oh my God, I can't find them. Uh, put, your, put your pants on. Oh, your pants are inside out. I don't care. Well, well, we happen to care because you're a Velton. We don't want you to think. We don't want everyone to think we're we're this dumb. Put your pants on right side in. Oh, shirt's inside out. I don't care. And for about three years, several times a week, we'd have this conversation. It'd go something like this. It would go. I, I would say to him, um, "I'm going to give you five minutes to work on your attitude. If you can't fix it, I think I have something that can." I know, not in the Danny Silk training manual. I get it. It was in Bill Johnson training manual. Yeah. Sometimes we have to, it starts from right here and it works its way up. I have to tell you that this is just me. This is not. This is, this is not, I am not representing the house at this point. It's just me. I, I don't always think it's the right thing to negotiate with children. Sometimes I think kids need to learn that, there's, that respect and authority is just as important as I get to make choices. When they get pulled over by a police officer, they don't get choices. So, you know... I'm not saying anyone else has a different opinion than that or that I've ever heard a different opinion than that. I'm just telling you what my parenting style is, is I don't always negotiate with you, especially when you're two. (laughs) When you're two, I don't negotiate a lot. It's pretty much like boss-slave relationship. (laughs) Pretty much like that. I remember... um, that uh, 
Jason's, uh, that, that Heather uh, got in a car accident. She was in the hospital for a week, my kid's um, mother. And so Riley, Riley was about, I think she was about five probably, huh? And Riley is our uh, strong-willed child. I, I know that because it's in a book that they gave me to read. Here, when you take care of Riley, can you read this book, please? I'm like, we raised four kids. I don't need a book. Yeah, Dad, you need to read this book. Trust me. <laughs> so I remember this one time, Riley's, we, uh, our bedroom's upstairs, like up these six steps, and Kathy went up to take a nap. And so Riley, she's like five years old, and so she looks like a, at the time, she looks like a blonde Brillo pad, you know, like Cousin It. With her, she had to pull her hair away from her eyes just to see where she's going. So I'm, I'm sitting on the couch, it's, it's like Saturday afternoon, and I'm sitting on the couch, and she starts going upstairs. I said, hey, where are you going? She says, I'm going to go see Grandma. I said, no, Grandma's sleeping, you can't see Grandma. She goes, well, Grandma said I could. I said, well, I said you can't. So she takes another step up, she said, well, Grandma said I could. <laughs> what page is that on? <laughs> I don't know what page this is on. I never used this book when I was raising kids. So she takes another step, and I said, Riley, I said, do not open that door. Grandma's sleeping. She said, well, Grandma said I could. I I can't even believe this is happening. (laughs) This is like a chihuahua. She takes another step. You know, she's one step from the deck. I said, Riley, do not open that door. Now I'm standing. She turns around. She says, Grandma said I could. (laughs) That book, I don't know anything about what that book says to do. But I have handled this before, my own way. So (laughs) she takes the last step to the deck and she grabs the handle and she turns around and stares at me and she said just like this grandma said I could I said if you push that door open I am going to Whip your butt. (laughs) I don't know what that strong-willed child book said. And I haven't read the Danny Silk manual yet. But this is what I will do. This is your choice right here. You push that door open, I will whip your butt. She looks at me. And she said, well, Grandma said... (laughs) that I could then every step six steps down grandma said I could grandma said I could we got along great the rest of the week two more and we'll be done the third one's trust Trust is the foundation of every relationship. You know, withholding information is the same thing as being dishonest. 
I, I didn't tell you I didn't do that. No, you didn't tell me you did, and you know you should have. Husbands and wife, a husband and wife relationship is full disclosure relationship. Anything less is a cracked foundation. You know, I, I've talked to people, it's like, uh, oh, yeah, don't tell your mother I have this money. No, 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 we don't have secrets. We don't have secret little money. We don't have secret sexual things that we go on. We don't, uh, we, we, don't, we don't have secrets. We only have full disclosure. Honesty isn't just, I tell the truth when you ask me. Honesty is, I live full disclosure with nothing hidden. I don't have anything hidden. You, you, are, you, are you following me? I, I want to be discreet, but like, there's no sexual things hidden. For the sake of a crowd. There's no sexual things hidden. Man isn't doing, husband's not doing something wife doesn't know about. Are you with me? Wife isn't doing something husband doesn't know about. I'm not just talking about adultery. I'm saying there's nothing hidden. There's, 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 I wouldn't be afraid to hand you my phone and you can read all my texts, you can read all my emails. I have nothing to hide. I don't behave with women in a way that I would ever care if Kathy walked in and saw it. I don't care. I, I live with nothing hidden. And by the way, I watch inside because I'm watching what's going on inside here. If a visual comes up I shouldn't have up, I pull it down. I take it down. I don't have sex with women in my mind. I don't have fantasy connections with women or in my mind. I don't have any of that stuff. I, don't, I, like, I wouldn't mind if she got in there and could see the movies that are running. I mean it sincerely. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I, I have a perfect mind. I'm, just, I'm simply saying I work on it. I work on it. And if she said, hey, why did that? I said, that was only up for 20 seconds. I pulled it down. You know, you, you know, Bill used to say, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep him from building a nest. You know, I'm not saying I don't have bad you know, thoughts that shouldn't be there go through my mind. I say, I don't grab a hold of him and, and say, oh, let, let's watch the movie. You know, sometimes the trailer goes by. I don't, I don't like order the movie. Are you, are you with me? So, so uh, honesty is not just about, well, when you, t- when you asked me, I told you. No, honesty is about, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing hidden between us. We don't have secret bank accounts. We don't have secret sexual experiences at all. It's everything we do is agreed upon. And we don't have secret ways we treat the children. Maybe I should say something about that. It's not okay when dad goes in and corrects Johnny and mom comes in and, and lets Johnny know that dad's not in a good mood. Like, bad plan. Be together. Have good communication. Have unified. You know, it's like, it's not like, l- let's not play the good, bad, good cop, bad cop. Because you know what happens pretty soon the kids figure out that they can play the good cop against the bad cop. And that's just a bad plan. It's like, let's, have, let's decide what we're going to, you know, if we're going to use whoever's stuff, or we're going to use this, pro- I mean, whatever. We're, we're gonna, whatever we're going to do, we do it together. And we don't let the kids play, play off of each other. Do, do you know what I'm trying to say? So we don't have Miss Mercy coming in and, oh, did Daddy spank? I'm so sorry. It's like, no, no, let's have a unified force. Let's talk about what we're going to do. Let's talk about it. 
And, and let's come to an agreement about what that's going to look like. And the last thing is, I have a couple minutes. The last thing is consistency. Your repetition becomes your reputation. Sometimes, uh, we, you know, I'll talk to people about their kids all the time, you know, because we're old. People are like, what do you think I should do about this? I say, well, I would do this. Go, well, we've done that. You, you, no, not you've done that. You've got to do that. It has to be culture. Like the kids have to be able to count on it. I, you know, I know, I, I know how tough it is on moms. And, you know, I've, I've, like you have, I've been in stores where mom's got, you know, two kids in the cart and dragging another one, and she's just trying to get groceries. Oh, my God, she's my hero. You know, kids are grabbing things off the... the <laughs> like, okay, I got a plan for that. <laughs> Has to do with a paddle, but it's probably not in the book either. <laughs> well, I mean, the worst possible thing you can do is kid grabs something after you've told him no three times, and you finally say, okay, well, go ahead, you can have that. And what did you just teach your kid? You just taught him, like, if you are persistent, you can get your way. So, you know, consistency is really important, to, you know, in, in, with kids and with each other. It's like, you should be predictable. You should be predictable. Your kids should be able to count on what you're going to do when they do stuff. I, I, I think sometimes it's funny because, um, you know, sometimes parents, they come, when I talk to them, they're like, my kid doesn't do, doesn't do anything unless I yell. Oh, you taught them that. Because you taught them that I yell first, then I act. What? See, you go, don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Now they're going to move because they know the next thing is an act. But if you said, don't touch that, and the next thing was an act, guarantee you they would act. You taught them when you're going to act. So you taught them, I yell before I act. So they don't act until you yell. So you taught them, I actually, the reason why you have to do what I say is because I'm mad. Instead of the reason why you have to do what I say is because it's the right thing. Because I'm trying to raise noble kids. I'm not, you know, I don't want you to respond because I'm angry. I want you to respond because it's the right thing to do. And if, I, if I'm not consistent, then it's like, well, I do what dad tells me to do because he's mad. Well, then I never get the idea. Like, how, what, what I run around my, when I, in my adult life running from people who are angry. And it's like, no, that's, that's not what I'm supposed to learn. I'm supposed to learn how to, how to take charge of myself, how to live from virtues, how to have good values, how to be a noble person. And I don't learn that by escalating levels of anger and I finally act and then I learn, I don't want angry people to get this angry, so I just get them this angry. And then when I get in a marriage, I do the same thing. I'm like, okay, how, how, how loud do they yell before they actually act? Okay, then I just keep it right below that. I'm like, no, that's, that's not a way to live. That's not a way to live. We need, we need to be consistent. We need to have consistent character. And we need to operate out of virtues. I'm never disciplining my children because I'm mad at them. As a matter of fact, Bill taught us, if you're mad, let them go upstairs until you calm down. Until you're actually disciplining them for their sake and not be, 
not to, you know, not to release your anger, that's a bad plan. See, that kid's making me mad right now. Yes, I'm joking. I'm sorry. I was just kidding. <laughs> I guess it's not always obvious, is it? Sorry. Joking. Um, I, I want to uh, tell you just, uh, I, have, I have four minutes, so I want to tell you two facts that I've learned recently. The first one is called the principle of first mention, and that says this. Whenever some, whoever teaches you a, a su- about a subject first that becomes the foundation of everything you believe. And when you hear about the same subject the second time, you measure the second thing you hear by what you heard first. So your first to- the first time someone teaches you about any subject, it becomes the way you see the subject. Not just what you believe about the subject, but the way you see the subject. When you hear about it the second time, you measure the second, the second time by the first time. In other words, the first thing that you hear, you believe to be true. Are you with me? Now, obviously, the reason I, this is in my notes right now is because we've been teaching about parents about sexuality. If you wait till your kid's 15 and you teach your kids about sex, guess what? Someone else taught them first. You know what they're doing? They're measuring what you tell them by what their friends taught them. So if you don't teach them first, then they're not thinking from the foundation of, healthy, of a healthy sexual culture, they're thinking from that foundation and they have to weigh what you said by what their teacher said or what someone else said. And I actually, and this is actually scientifically proved fact, especially with all new brain mapping, they're finding that, that foundations are laid through first mention. What's really cool about this is I actually believe it's God. Because I believe that God intended us to teach our children first about every thing that's important in life. So we get to get in there first. We have them for 18 years. We get them 24 hours a day. We get them when they're little. And when they're little, we're already teaching them about important subjects, right? So when they hear their friends say this about whatever, sexuality we talked about for a minute, they hear their friend go, da-da-da-da. They measure that against what they learn for 14 years from mom and dad at home. And they go, that can't be true because this is, what I, this is the way I see that subject. Are you with me? And so it's important that we teach our kids first. And the, second, uh, the last thing I want to share, just to have two minutes left, is this. Is that the frontal cortex of the brain is not fully developed until people are in their mid-twenties. You're like, oh, okay, what's, what, what do you care? What, what does that matter? It matters when you're raising kids because the frontal cortex of your brain is the cause and effect center of your brain. It's the reason why your kid will, you know, jump off the roof and, and fall to the ground. And you go, what were you thinking? And you go, I don't know. Well, the truth is, he doesn't know. Because the part of, it, of your brain that processes, I'm going to do this, and this is going to be the effect, that part of your brain is actually not connected to the rest of your brain yet. It doesn't connect until you're in your late teens and early 20s. That's why, you know, how many of you have teenagers? How many of you have teenagers in the room? Yeah. And how many of you at Bethel TV, you have teenagers? Oh, I see you. Yes. <laughs> you ever ask your teenager when they do something stupid why they did it? What's the almost always answer? I don't know. And you're like, you're lying to me. 
No, no, I actually don't know. I actually don't know why I did that. Why did you hit your sister with that frying pan? Well, I don't know. Why'd you throw that ball through the window? I don't know. Did you try to throw the ball through the window? Uh Uh-huh. Why? I don't know. Why did you put your foot under the tire of the car and let it run over you? I don't know. I literally don't know. I literally don't know, which is the reason why they need you. It's the reason why they need you, because their brain's not all there. And so when they're about to do something, you got to say, hey, you probably don't know this, but if you put your foot underneath that tire, it's going to break your foot. Oh, oh yeah. I've told a story, and I'll just end with this. i got three, 30 seconds left. When I was about, I don't know, I was probably 12 years old, we had a, a canal out back. We, we called it a river. And it had a, it had a big fence, a large fence. We lived in a track, a really, uh, a really very low-class track. And there was thousands of kids on our track. I don't know if there was thousands. There was hundreds of kids on our track. And we used to have wars and, and gangs, and, and it was, we were just kids. Anyway, my best friend and I, we built a boat out of plywood out of my dad's shed. And uh, I built this boat. We built this boat. It was a really cool boat. And uh, we were all proud of it. And we had to lift it over the top of this fence to get it in the canal. You know what a canal is? It's like that, you know, it's really steep-walled concrete. It's an irrigation ditch. It's an irrigation ditch. And there was, the, there was a farm right there uh, up against, that ran up against the housing con- uh, track. So we build this plywood boat, and you know, we're 12, you know how, how heavy plywood is. So we get down to the, to the canal, and, we, and it takes us like 10 minutes, and we hoist the thing over the top of the, the, of the, uh, of the wall, fence, it's actually a fence, over the top of the fence, and you know, it falls over the top of the fence and right into the canal. It's like right there, into the canal. So we climb down the wall, we get in it, and we're going to float down the canal, and I mean, we got in, we were in it like three seconds, and it, it's, the, a knot had popped out of the plywood, and water was coming in the plywood. So we rescued the thing. You can imagine how, you know, two 12-year-old kids trying to rescue this thing that sunk to the bottom of the canal, and it's got swift, you know, it's pretty swift. And so we finally get it out, lift it over the top of the fence, take it home, and, you know, and I had this really great idea. So I go in the shop, and I, and I find, we, my dad's got a bunch of hole saws, so I find the exact same hole size hole that's in the bottom of the boat, and I drill another one in the front. And my dad comes by, and he's like, what, what are you doing? I'll never forget the look on his face. It's one of the only times he was nice to me. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, we'll put the boat in the canal, and it's sunk. The water's coming out this hole. I said, Okay. So what are you doing? Drilling another hole in the boat. Well, we wanted the water to be able to go out the other hole. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> the absolute true story. It would be just like him, but I don't know if I would do anything different, actually, if it would have been Jason and Brian. But 
But he just looked at me and he goes, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> but his look gave me the feeling like something was wrong. But he said, oh, that's a great idea. So we go, <laughs> we, go, we go lift the boat over. You know, it's all waterlogged by now anyway. <laughs> we lift her over the top, put it in the canal. And before we could jump the fence, it had disappeared. <laughs> and water was shooting out of boat holes. <laughs> I'll never forget that revelation. <laughs> and once in a while, you know, when this ain't connected, <laughs> it doesn't occur to you that drilling two holes in the bottom of the boat, the water is not going to go out one, in one, and out the other. It's like water doesn't have a brain. Like We didn't think through that very well. Anyway, thanks for enduring this. Why don't you stand and let me pray for you. This felt so weird preaching tonight. It's the first time I've preached in eight days when I didn't talk and then have someone da 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 and then talk and feel weird to not have a translator. I just want to pray for families. Lord, I, I just really do pray for... I just pray for healthy families. That we would have healthy families, that we would demonstrate healthy families. That the world be able to see a model of what you intended. And they'd be able to look at that and go, oh, that, that's what they mean. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us wisdom in the coming days. As you've given us wisdom in this whole Reformation, I pray that you would give us wisdom again for how to have naturally and supernaturally healthy families. And I pray for every person that's listening, that's struggling in their in their relationship, husband and wife, kids, whatever, grandparents, whatever, wherever there's relational brokenness. Lord, I know that you said in the last days that the prophetic movement would restore families. You would send Elijah the prophet and he would restore hearts of sons and fathers. And so there's a spirit of reconciliation on the prophets and on this day. So we just pray for a spirit of reconciliation to be on our homes and in our hearts. And that you would teach us uh, what it is to be uh, live in a covenant and not just cohabit. Amen. 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 Thank you so very, very much.